You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Hey, folks. So there's a lot that I am continually excited about. And the fear and panic over coronavirus is not one of those things. Um, I have made a prayer, if you haven't already seen it, called the Coronavirus Prayer that you can grab off of our website if you have been in fear or panic or uh, any other kind of state of distress regarding all that's been going on in the world as a result of this thing. I want to let you all know that we are really excited about our DID Coach Mentorship Program, where I am mentoring personally a number of people. This year, we have 14 people that are going through the DID Coach Mentorship Program with me, and uh, I am training these individuals to do what I do the way I do it and uh, basically trying to empty out my brain into theirs. And I, I am just so excited about all of the folks that are going to be helped by those that are training to minister with excellence in the area of DID and SRA coaching. And uh, this is the ministry to, to the broken and those needing deliverance and inner healing on a lower level. You know, the, the tools and the approaches that we use here at Bride Ministries are are applicable to so many different situations. And and you know what? The truth is I'm not done training. This is not going to be my one and done. Uh, there will be a class of 2021 as well. And possibly two for those of you in Australia. We are considering the possibility that if there is enough interest, we may do a sister school and have the Australian uh, participants uh, basically have their own program to themselves where I am traveling over there, uh, their own cohort, so to speak. And so we are exploring different things. But over here in the States, we're definitely going to be having a class of 2021. Either way, regardless of where you are, if this has been a calling or something that God has on your heart to be part of the army he is raising to address the masses that are going to be looking for help soon to recover from satanic ritual abuse, government sponsorship sponsored mind control projects, uh, those that are targeted individuals, and those that have come from very broken backgrounds. Uh, you can go to bridemovement.com. On our ministry page, it says, I want to be a coach with Bride Ministries. And that is the link to our application. And so I highly, highly uh, recommend that if this is something the Lord has had heavy on your heart, Please apply and and don't be afraid of the application. Understand that we are setting people up for success. It is a bit of a lengthy application and, and come summertime, we're going to be doing actual interviews face to face. Um, we don't want to accept people into this program that are not going to make it. The program does come with a financial investment. And so we want to partner with you in your success. And, and, and part of that is um, going to be helping those that are not the right fit for this program to, to not make the financial investment. And so, um, with that said, that's there for you. And, uh, we are going to be, well, you're going to be hearing more about that throughout the year. Now, please keep in mind, we have a church at Bride Ministries. It's called Bride Ministries Church. <laughs> nice and simple. Um, every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. And despite the coronavirus scare, uh, I can guarantee you we will not be canceling our church. Why won't you be canceling our church? Well, because we can guarantee you won't catch coronavirus at our church. How can you say that, Dan Duvall? Easy. It's an e-church, meaning you can log in from wherever you are in the world and participate. And so we want to invite you to do that. And uh, there may be some of you out there with questions. Daniel, are you going to do anything about your conference in May? Because you have the Bride Tribe Advance. You've been talking about it, talking about it, but there are people canceling all kinds of things. The answer is, I'm not going to cancel anything unless we have to. And by have to, I mean... I get contacted by the uh, location and they say, look, we're canceling all events for the month of May. And so you're going to have everything refunded and so forth. So um, unless that happens, and of course, we're not going to be uh, 
standing by idly, we are going to be praying that does not happen. Um, unless that happens, we are going to be holding our advance May 14th through the 17th. And we want to invite you to be there because they are amazing. And if you have not downloaded the Bride Ministries app yet, you can find it at iTunes or the Google uh, Play Store. So with that said, we're going to get right to the interview. We have a powerful, powerful guest. You guys have heard her before. Her name is Sharice. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, we are back on Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. And you, by now, probably are familiar with my guest, Sharice. And she has been with me now uh, three times. This is the fourth installment of her testimony. And um, as you have probably noticed with Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall, uh, through the years, we do testimonies of survivors in series. Why? Because there's just way too much data, way too much information to cram into in, into one sitting. Um, Sharice is no different. And if this is the first time you are tuning into our podcast and hearing her, I highly, highly want to encourage you to go back and start at the first part so you can get all the backstory because there are going to be things explained in this program that won't make as much sense if you haven't tracked with her testimony the whole way. Now, uh, Sharice is a survivor of programming of various sorts. A lot of her programming came through the Freemasonry Lodge and people associated with it. Um, however, she has also been exposed to agents of the CIA. She has been exposed to satanic cults, um, rituals done in wooded areas, caverns, and so forth. And, oh my gosh, has her story been a, a, a journey? So, Sharice, you are super brave. It's so good to have you back on Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Thank you, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. And Sharice, um, I am just going to begin with this statement. You know, you have shared some things about your father that have been quite disturbing um, because he did a lot of very, very wicked and evil things uh, during your childhood, uh, things that have highly frustrated people who have journeyed with us through your story. Um, but there are some elements of that relationship that turned out to be a bit redemptive. And I want to let you start there. And uh, we're going to journey from that into the rest of what we're going to be talking about today. Sounds good. I, I want to uh, jump ahead a little bit in my story and talk about the uh, redemptive power of the blood of Jesus and his saving power. When I was somewhere in my teens, early 20s, I'm not sure exactly when this happened, but my father became saved. And I believe it started when he read a book by Merlin Carruthers called Prison to Praise. And that book transformed my father's life. And from that point, my father became an avid reader of the Bible. He studied it every day. Um, he bought every Christian book he could find. He actually had quite, quite a large library of Christian books. and. The transformation in my father's life was amazing, and he actually became kind. I have memories of him um, holding the door open for me, and so that when my children and my grandchildren came along, they had memories of their grandfather studying the Word of God, 
quoting the word of God and mailing the word of God to all of the children, to all the grandchildren. He wanted to make sure that each person in the family had the word of God. And so my uh, mother and my father became godly people. Um, they spent a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time praying for us children and grandchildren. My father was never able to um, ever apologize to me and ever, ever talk about what had transpired in the past. I believe my father thought that since I was so young, when a lot of the abuse happened, and then when I was older, I was under hypnosis and drugs, I believe he thought that I wouldn't have any memory of it. But um, he, he did become a very good man. When my father was older, he developed throat cancer, which is quite common for people in Freemasonry. Uh, it, it's quite common to have heart disease and throat cancer because so many curses are placed on the throat and on the heart of Freemasons. And, and my father, um, the doctors believed that they could remove the cancer. They didn't think it was that bad. My mother and father both joined in prayer over the surgery. And after the surgery, my mother was waiting for the doctor to, to come out. And the doctor came out and, and my mother said he was visibly shaken. He came up to my mother and he said, did they tell you what they did to your husband? And my mom was confused, and she said, I, I, don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, they came in during surgery. I can't believe what they did to that poor man, your husband. And then the doctor walked away, and my mom was very confused. She didn't understand. She didn't know who they were and who had the authority to come in and do something to my dad during surgery. And, and my mother had said, if I ever meet up with this doctor again, I want to ask him about that. And she never saw him again. And um, almost immediately after that, my mother started developing dementia. And so she started losing her memory. Yet throughout um, her final years, she never forgot what the doctor said, and she would repeat it word for word. So I believe the cult somehow came in and did something to my dad because he died a short time later. Because the cult does not let people go. And um, so that, that is a mystery. I, I won't know. But my Lord Jesus Christ, he, he took me to heaven one day. And he actually showed me my dad's mansion, which was this, it was like a lodge on a lake. And um, dad saw me. And he was young and he was happy. And my dad showed me his house. He even showed me. I realize some people probably aren't going to believe this, but um, my dad had always wanted an antique car collection. And so he had this massive antique car collection. And my dad was showing it to me. And while he was showing it to me, I heard a little voice say, Mama, Mama. And I looked. And one of my children that I had lost, I had named her Sharice Joy. She had red curly hair and green eyes. And she came running up to me and she put her arms around my neck and she was kissing my cheek. And I picked her up and I hugged her and I was spinning around with her. She said, Mama, I've been waiting such a long time for you. And um, she said that. She had been going to Papa's house 
and Papa had been giving her her rides in his car. And after that, um, my dad apologized to me for the things he had done to me on earth. And it was quite, quite profound. And so I was very thankful that um, the Lord allowed me to see that. And I, I told my father I forgave him. And so that part was settled. And I was very grateful to that. But uh, um, earlier, before my father had, <clears throat> had, had passed away, many of the things that had been set in motion by my father's actions, it started a ball rolling and that kept rolling and it involved more and more people. And um, some of those people were in the CIA. There was a man that lived down the street from us. He was ex-CIA. My father used to talk about him all the time. Um, he was very impressed by him and by his stories. Well, I started receiving orders to go to this man's house in the middle of the night. I would get up. Um, how old were you when these orders started to come? I was about 13, 14. Okay. And um, so I, I would receive an order. I, I would leave the house dressed in, in my pajamas. Um, it was usually a sh shirt and shorts. I would walk in the cold, barefoot, down to the man's house. And I remember the order specifically. You are to go to the White House on the corner with the balcony. You are to go to the back door. The porch light will be on. There will be two trash cans next to the back door. You are to knock on the door. So in, in a semi-hypnotized state, I went there. It was, it was just as he said. I knocked on the door. This man came to the door. He was about late 60s, short, a little bit paunchy. He brought me in. I remember walking through the dark kitchen. I mean, I could tell you what it looked like. He took me down a little hallway into an office, and there was a large desk in there. He had a, a burgundy-colored leather chair. He told me to sit in the chair, and he... Um, he came up to me with a flashlight. He held it in my eyes. He flashed it a number of times, which was to ensure that I was going into a complete hypnotic trance. And while he was flashing that light, he would repeat tick, talk, tick, talk. And in my mind, I was panicking and I was begging him to shut up and to stop because I knew what it was going to um, entail. and. And then pretty soon I didn't, I didn't care anymore. It's like I, w I was completely numb and, and nothing mattered. And so he, he would take my hand and he had these, these really long pins, kind of like the kind that the florists have. They're just really long pins. He would start jabbing them under my nails. And I wouldn't flinch. And then he, he took the floor lamp and he brought it over, he shone it in my eyes, and he said, do not blink. And I remember it was burning my eyes, but I did not blink. And he said, good, and he sat down. Then he went and he pulled out a file on red letters. It said classified on it, he took out a handful of papers. I, I confess I do not understand all of this. I, I had powers and abilities at that time that I do not possess now. So I'm assuming that they were demonically inspired. I don't know. But he would take each paper, and, and they weren't numbered or in any particular order. He would hold, hold it up to my face, and he would yell at me to uh, concentrate. If I looked away, I'd be slapped. He would take the pen, jab it in my thigh so that I was fully concentrating. He would hold each paper there for about one second. He did that with about 40 papers. And then he took all the papers and he threw them up in the air and they scattered all over. He said, put them back in the order that I showed them to you. And I, I did, I remember thinking, well, this isn't that, that difficult. He held the papers, he said, 
what was on the fifth page. I still remember on the fifth page, it said classified in red letters. It was dated February 14th, 1974. It said MK Ultra Incorporation and Benefits. It said the subject chosen must comply to every command given without hesitation. They must be easily manipulated, impervious to pain, and open to suggestions. And then after that, I remember it started getting blurry in my mind, and the man slapped me hard. And he said, concentrate, tell me what it says. This went on for about three hours. And every time I would mess up, I, I would have a needle jabbed in me. I'd, I'd be slapped. Then um, after that, he um, went and got another file of papers. He did not show the papers to me. He threw them up in the air. He said, put these papers in the order that they were in the file. And I remember crawling on the floor, and it was as though my mind started shorting out because the most frightening thing was not having an order, not knowing what to do. I had to be told what to do. And so I was crawling on the floor, and I was trying to put these papers in order, but I never saw what order they, they were in. And he had this big, heavy book, and he took it, and he hit me really hard on the back of the head. And he would say, you're not concentrating. And then he had brought out this uh, glass. It was kind of a rectangle. It was almost like a vase. It, it had, I was assuming it had water in it. And inside of it were uh, documents that, that had been burned. And, and there were little scraps of uh, paper, but most of it was ashes. And he said, put these back together and make them whole again so that they're not burned. And I was confused, so I started to uh, reach my hand in there, and he said, no, do it with your mind. And so I know that they were trying to uh, train me to uh, be able to uh, manipulate things with, with my mind. I, I believe I went to that man's house three different times, and then after that, I was taken to the CIA headquarters. I honestly believe that this was in Langley, Virginia. I don't know how I got there, but I remember sitting. It was a big office. It was open. There were many desks, lots of people walking around doing things. And they came and they sat me in a chair and they brought in um, a big chalkboard. It, it had legs and, and rollers and they put it in front of me. I, I could kind of look under the chalkboard and I could see that there was a man seated on the other side of the chalkboard. I could only see his legs. I couldn't, I couldn't see anything else. And this man had large flashcards that only he could see. And as he would hold one up to his face, I was supposed to interface with the electrical currents in his brain and look at what he was looking at. I know I was not astraling, I was interfacing. And I, I remember clearly the first, first four cards, there was, a, um, there was a red circle, there was a blue box, there was a puppy, there was a yellow kitten. So I was telling him everything that he was looking at. So uh, after that, they uh, took me to a back room in the CIA headquarters and contained within this room, it was like a, a smaller plexiglass room. And there was a man seated in there um, in a chair. And they told me that I was supposed to connect with the electrical currents in his brain, that I was supposed to tell them what he was thinking, what emotions he had, and particularly if he was lying and if he was scared. And they trained me to uh, watch the slightest minute movement of his nostrils, of anything else that may give an indication as to what he was thinking. 
And so I did that. And I remember thinking it was so exhausting. I didn't feel like I could do it because it was so mentally exhausting. But I, I watched him and I looked at it, at it and, and I told them, I said, he is scared and he is lying. So they took the man out of the, the plexiglass room and they took him to another back room in the CIA headquarters. And they took me to this back room. They placed a gun in my hand and they said, you have to shoot and kill this man because um, he's, he's been lying. I remember standing there. I had the gun in my hand and all of a sudden my, my brain started shorting out. I literally had electricity. I could see it arcing out of the palms of my hand. And I went into a total catatonic state and I, I just completely shut down. So I, I had failed at being an assassin. So then they started training me to be a spy for the CIA. And there was a, a high ranking official within the CIA. He was up on an upper floor in this, in this building I was in. They told me that uh, this man was alone in his office. He was looking at classified documents. They said that I had to interface with electricity in his room and to uh, tell them what these documents were because they needed to know. And so I remember interfacing with electricity and anywhere there was an, a, a wall outlet, a lamp, a clock, I could see through those things. <clears throat> and there was an outlet behind him and there was a lamp on his desk. And I remember looking through those things and looking at these documents. I, I don't remember um, what they were now. Uh, I just know that they had to do with national security. And so I was able to uh, go back and tell them. But even after that, something started shorting out in my brain. So just to get a little bit of clarity here, when you were looking through the outlets at these documents, you were basically merging with the electrical current and traveling to a room where these documents were to look at them. And yes. then you were able to communicate in the room you're physically sitting in what they yes. are about to these people until your brain began to short out. Yes, yes, correctly. And, and I forgot to mention what, what they had done too when I first came in is that they had hooked up wires to my brain and they went to a computer. Mm. And they had, had told me that my memories were stored on these, on these CIA computers. I have run into that so many times with people. Uh, and, and it's very hard for, and I, I'm so glad that you're saying this, Sharice, I just have to highlight what you're explaining. Sure. Um, people want to think that you can't digitize a person's memories and upload them to a physical computer sitting in Langley or some other headquarters of a government facility. That is absolutely false. You can and it has been going on for a long time. Many, many sessions, I've sat with people as angels have gone into computers and data banks in different mm -hmm. places on and off planet to pull back memories that were stored there, that literally removed from the brain and stored in these computers and facilities. Um, so people don't have access to the memories until they're pulled out of these things. It's yes. a technology that is actually not new to 2020. And so um, thank you for saying that. That's going to affirm some things for some people. Please continue. Well, um, actually, uh, many of my memories did not start coming back to me until you and I had worked with this computer and we discovered that it was password protected and the Lord told me that the password was child sacrifice. 
And I remember you sent your angels in and they were, you know, unplugging stuff and retrieving stuff. And um, I remember asking you, I said, are your angels kind of odd because they're like giving each other high fives and that's not typically how my angels respond. And you're like, yeah, those are my angels. <laughs> so um, after, after they had retrieved my memories, then, then a lot of these memories started, started coming back to me. But um, so after my time with the, the CIA, they continued to use me as a spy. Um, I remember I was given instructions in the town I lived in that I was to go to an um, attorney's office. And I walked there. I was in a, in a trance-like state. The attorney was very mean. And he grabbed my finger and he lit a match. And he held the match to my finger until my finger was blistering. And I did not pull my finger away. He said, slap yourself in the face. And I did. And he said, you stupid mind-controlled idiots are all alike. And he told me a house to go to. He said that the owners of the house at that exact time would not be in the house, but that they, they would be back soon, that the house would be unlocked that I was to go to a central location in the house and I was to hide and I was to um, listen and overhear what the man of the house was talking about and report back to them. So I walked numbly to the house and it was a, a tall, narrow Victorian house. There were steps going up to it. I walked up to the front door. It was unlocked. As I walked in, I didn't have any sense that I was doing anything wrong because I remember thinking, no, I, I'm carrying out an order. That's a very good thing. So it's not like I was aware that, you know, I'm breaking into somebody's house. So I walked in this house. I remember it clearly uh, directly to the left was a master bedroom. To the right was was a living room and a dining room area. There was a long, narrow hall down to a kitchen. But um, there was a little alcove on, on the left, just a little area with a washer and dryer and a laundry hamper. And since I didn't know which room they would come in, I chose to hide behind the laundry hamper, although it wasn't really a separate room. It was just a little alcove, so it was a little bit exposed. I crouched down and I was hiding behind the laundry hamper and a man and woman came in and they went in the bedroom for about 45 minutes and um, I could hear them talking and I remember I was making mental notes of what they were saying, although at this time I ha have no idea what that was. And after about 45 minutes, the man walked down the hallway past me to the kitchen when he turned around to come back, he saw me, and he was very angry, but he was not surprised that somebody was hiding in his house. And he grabbed me, and I, I believe I told him that I was lost. And he, he dragged me to the front door. He opened the front door, and he shoved me out, and he said, don't you ever come back. And I remember thinking, this has probably happened to him before. And so I went back to the attorney's office and I told them whatever it was that uh, the man had said. I have no idea who the man was. I'm assuming he was in the government to some, some capacity. But um, whenever I was supposed to receive instructions or whenever I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to go to the city park and sit on the second swing from the left and stay there until I was told what to do. I remember sitting on that swing all day long and feeling very scared because I panicked. I, 
I, I had to be told what to do. I had to know what to think. And there were times I was so tired. There was a row of bushes next to the swings. I would actually crawl in the bushes and sleep on the dirt for hours and then wake up and sit on the swing again. And many times I'd be there all day long and then I would walk home in the evening not, not knowing what to do. When I was older, the um, cult tells you uh, what to do. They, they tell you what profession they want you to be in. They want all cult members in very um, high-level positions. They want them as doctors, as nurses, as teachers, um, social workers, ambulance drivers, morticians, uh, um, police. So they, they, they specifically and strategically position all of these people in these high-level positions. I remember clearly being told, you have to be a child psychologist. I had no interest in that. I wasn't even sure what all that entailed, but I, I went to college and, and I told them that my major was child psychology. When they asked me why, I, I had no idea. It's like it, it, it threw me off. It's like, well, what do you mean why? That's, that's what I have to do. And uh, so I, I went a year taking some of those courses. I remember my second year when I went back, they had one day where everybody would, would come and they would all go into the same room. There would be tables set up and everybody would uh, register for their next year's classes at that time. I remember standing in the middle of the room with my piece of paper and nobody came and told me what to do. And I remember I was so lost. I didn't understand. And I literally stood there for hours, just in a catatonic state, waiting for someone and nobody came. And so I remember walking over, I guess in an act of defiance and taking my paper and throwing it in the trash and walking out. The cult um, also tells you who you can marry. And they have uh, very specific people. It is all for the purpose of combining bloodlines. And and my first husband, we were only married a very short while. Um, I am convinced that the cult told both of us that we were supposed to marry each other because we had often talked about how how we didn't even like each other. We weren't attracted to each other. He said the only thing he liked about me was my haircut, and then my hair grew out, and then he didn't like me anymore. But we knew we had to get married. And I don't believe that my husband at the time even knew or even had, had any memories of cult involvement, but I do believe that he was from a royal bloodline. And it's all about combining those bloodlines. And so, and so we were married for a short time. During that short time of marriage, the demons started manifesting themselves physically to me in incredible ways that I had not seen before. I believe that this had something to do with his spiritual covering over me or his lack of spiritual covering and whatever evil was on his bloodline, whatever evil was on my bloodline, it combined and it was not good. And at this time, um, the demons started coming to me every night, 50 to 100 times a night, they would attack me and they would completely paralyze me. They would beat me up um, physically. I, I would wake up with uh, physical bruises on me. They would come as a gang of demons and they would lift me up off my bed while I was sleeping. I have no doubt if somebody had woken up or come into the room that they would have seen me suspended in midair. These, these demons would gang rape me. 
and they would beat me up. And I was completely paralyzed. I couldn't speak. I remember uh, one time I was trying so hard to say in Jesus name. Finally, I got those words out. I said in Jesus name. And then what those demons did next absolutely shocked me because they started mocking me and they started saying in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And I couldn't understand how they could mock me and use that name. The only thing I could figure out was, you know, I, I had no memory of my past. My husband at the time, I'm sure, had, had no memory. But it was the combination of evil and the open doors. Do you think that some of these... Um entities were human agents of the cult astral projecting or are you pretty convinced these were just demons no no i'm not i'm not convinced because at at that time my my presenter portion i guess had no concept of of astraling so yes it is very possible that that's what they were that's so interesting. And, and this is, um, you know, and I'm glad you're bringing this up as well, because Sharice, I'm sure you know this, you're not the first person to be engaged in the spiritual attack of this nature as a Christian, uh, calling on the name of Jesus and finding less than desirable results from that. Um, for religious people, this is absolutely unacceptable. Um, they can't hear your testimony um, because the grid is too small to include the reality of certain people's experience. But here at Pride Ministries, we believe you. <laughs> and so the, the, the amazing thing is that when people go through this kind of a thing, call in the name of Jesus and find what happened to you, it's actually pretty stubborn. Um, the attack is not breaking. What I have found is that, uh, in some of these cases, as we press into it more deeply, and I'm not saying we haven't talked about your situation, um, but other times when I've done this with other people, we found that these were agents of the cult astraline. And so they, they have the capacity to rape the person from the um, astral plane. Um, they have their human agency in, in, in so far as just like I could take the name of the Lord in vain in my physical body. Uh, I can also do it in my astral form. Now I don't do that because I don't know how to astral at all. So there you go. But uh, these people seem to have that capacity. And then sometimes it gets more complicated because we find these composites and these hybrid spirits where they're taking uh, pieces of human soul, but knitting it to artificial intelligence and demonic components in different percentages, and then having a presenting consciousness over that entity, the rules bent. And in these cases, uh, attacks can be a little bit more confusing. And the results of using a, a basic strategy, like crying out the name of Jesus, isn't always bringing about the results that people hope for. And so I'm really glad you brought that up because it's an important conversation we need to be having. This is one of the reasons why, you know, our evening prayers at Bride Ministries have helped people um, engaging the angel armies of heaven to apprehend and arrest these rogue agents coming in it has, in my experience, been much more effective than just and only deploying the name of Jesus in these encounters. So, um, Thanks for bringing it up. Sure. Well, um, what what the enemy started doing also is is while I was in this paralyzed state, suspended in um, midair. Um, by that time, I I had had children of my own, and I could see out of my bedroom door into the kitchen. And while I was up in the air helpless, I would see the kitchen drawer open on its own and all of the kitchen knives come out 
and head towards the nursery. And I have never fought like I, I fought to um, protect my children. Um, I was fighting with everything I had and I could hear my children screaming and screaming. Now, I believe that, that the knives were real, but I believe that the screams were not. I believe because I, I did not know any of my past and I prayed earnestly for my children from the time I was pregnant with them. I prayed for their future spouses every day. I covered them in the blood of Jesus. So I believe that those screams were a trick from the enemy to cause me absolute terror, to make me think that they were killing my children. Um, but to see those knives flying through the air as a mother, and you are completely helpless. And when the attack was done, I, I would race into the nursery and my children would be asleep. But um, uh, many strange things started happening during that time. I would be in my living room um, in the middle of the day, and there would be a picture hanging on the wall clear across the living room. It would fly off, and it would be suspended in midair uh, just inches from my face, and then it would crash to the floor. So I, I started telling people at church, you know, asking for prayer. And they said, well, these, these, are, these are just dreams, probably because you had some type of abuse in your past. I knew that they weren't. Those kind of things went on all the time. Um, after, after my husband and I were, were divorced, I remember one time my children and I, we were traveling in my car on the highway. And I don't know if this person was sent to kill me or what the deal was, but I'm on the highway. I am, I, there was um, two lanes each, each way, going each way. There was not a median. So I was on the inner, on the inside lane. I was traveling, there was a truck next to me. There were cars coming. All of a sudden, from a side street, a car shot out and stopped in front of me. I remember grabbing onto the wheel and saying, dear Jesus. Instantly, I was on the other side of the car. I didn't even realize what had happened until I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw the man behind me still there in my lane. So I knew Jesus had saved us. He had actually picked up our car and moved it. I know, I, I know the Lord did that for me another time. Um, I, I was actually at the hospital, and I had parked in the parking garage. I, I had to go to the hospital for a test or something. And I remember thinking that there was something, something evil going on in the parking garage. So... I remember I was I was on I was on level C. I got in the elevator and I went to level C and there was another man in the elevator with me. We got out and started walking. I couldn't find my car and I looked and it said level B. I thought, well, that was kind of an odd quirk. So then the man and I got back in the elevator. We pushed it to level C. We, we could feel the elevator going up a floor. It stopped and we got out and took two steps and it said level B. And so we decided there was something goofy going on with the elevator. So uh, we decided to take the stairs, took the stairs, walked to the right floor. I got out and I'm on the wrong floor, level B. So I know that, that the Lord was intervening and he was keeping me from being on that level for a specific reason. I finally again went up the stairs and I came to the right level, was able to get in my car and leave. So um, even though I, 
I had so much iniquity, so much uh, evil in my past that I wasn't aware of. I was trying hard to seek the Lord and to teach my children to seek the Lord and, and, and the Lord protected me. Hmm. Um, the Lord had been training me for prayer ministry. I can't say that that was something I was real interested in at the time because I did not have my own memories. And I remember thinking those kind of people are freaky. I don't know if I want, if I want to work with those kind of people. Um, and, and just for the sake of the listener, how old were you when this particular training started in your Christian walk? I was, I was actually um, in my forties. So I was, I was older and, and one night I fell asleep was taken to heaven. I don't understand how all this works. I, I, I had had many, many visions of heaven, but this time I was physically there. I knew I was there. I could feel the temperature. I could feel things. I could see things. I was standing in a long line of people that were standing in front of the Father's throne. The line moved very quickly. I got up and I was standing before the Father and he leaned over. He said, you are here to receive your commission. I remember thinking, well, I'm not even sure what that means. And instantly in my hands, I had this golden box with, with a hinged golden lid. I opened it and it was full of like gold dust. And then I don't know what happened to the box, but I had my hands cupped and it was like liquid gold was poured into my hands and it was running down me and I was holding it up. But what was so, so profound was not the um, gold dust. It was when I was in heaven, I was home. My heart longed for nothing else. I was whole and complete, lacking in nothing. The joy that was there was unimaginable. I had only caught glimpses of joy in my life, maybe at Christmas, uh, waiting for something. But if anyone is, is doubting, <laughs> doubting heaven, you are going to be home. You are going to say, this is what my soul and my spirit have been longing for all of my life. The joy and the peace and the amazing love that was emanating from the Father, I never wanted to leave. Mm. And it was after that that the Lion of Judah started coming to me every single day. And he would have me climb on his back. And he would take me all over the world. He would take me to Africa, to um, Israel, all over the um, United States, always to, to people's houses, to huts with dirt floors, to um, big houses. And many of those times, I know that I was there. I could feel the temperature in the room. I could tell you every piece of furniture in the room. And he, he would lead me to somebody who had cried out to him. The Lion of Judah always said, I will always come when I am asked, when I am called. And these people had called on the name of the Lord. And he came in response to that. Many times there were people that, that were sick and dying. And the Lord would say, go and pray for them. And I'd be like, well, I don't know what to say. And he would say, I will give you the words. And so words just started coming to my mind. I would hold babies. I would pray for them. They, they would be healed. I would meet people that were literally demon-possessed. And the Lord would show me how to pray for them. And the time we left, they were on their knees praising the Lord. There were angels present. So... He was training me with all sorts of different people in different cultures, with different problems, how to minister to people. Wow. Can I ask a question? Yes. 
Were you in these encounters simultaneously aware of being in your physical body praying or by the time you were in this place, were you just basically aware of wherever the line of the tribe of Judah had taken you? It, it was actually both because many times I was aware that I was sitting in my chair with my Bible in my lap, you know, and I could hear, hear my dog bark or noises going on. But then other times I was only aware of what was going on there. And when I came back, I would look at the clock and a couple of hours would have passed. And I thought I was only gone for a few minutes. So, you know, I don't know if I was taken physically. I know many of the people saw me and they interacted with me. Um, so I don't, I don't know. But um, uh, one thing the Lord did is that another time he, he took me to heaven and he said, I have, I have somebody here who wants to meet you. And the Lord brought out this large group of um, babies and very small children. And right in the middle of all of these babies, I saw my little girl that I had named Sharice Joy. She said, Mama, she came running up to me with a little tiny baby in her hand. She said, Mama, I'm so glad you're here. We've been waiting for you. She said, I have lots of brothers and sisters. And the Lord was showing me all of my children that I had lost. I had named each one of them. And I got to um, hold them. I got to smell that sweet baby smell as they snuggled up next to me. Many of them were hugging, hugging my neck and kissing my face. Now, uh, one thing that I learned is that babies in uh, heaven, they do age, but they, they age very, very differently. And the Lord had showed me that uh, many people that have lost a baby or a child, and they missed out on getting to watch each stage of that child's life, watching them grow up. They haven't missed it because many of those children are still infants. And, and when those parents get to heaven, they're going to have the pleasure and the pure joy of watching their child grow. And they're going to get to watch each stage. They haven't missed a thing. And so that just spoke to me of the deep love of the father, knowing the longing of a mother and a father's heart who have lost a child, who have miscarried, who had a child that died early. They haven't grown up in heaven, but they will. And they will get to be there and give God the glory for being so good and for allowing them to join in on that. I mean, if you can imagine watching your child's first steps in heaven and watching your child grow in that perfect atmosphere, it was, it, it was quite, quite profound. And, and the Lord started taking me to different places in heaven. I realize, I realize many people uh, may not believe this, but the Lord led me down streets in heaven. There were shops, there were, there were tea shops, there were amusement parks. What, what really struck me, though, was he took me in the nursery. And in this nursery, there are like all of these bassinets. I just encourage any, any believer that ha has lost a child to please name that child because as soon as you name that child, their name is on a plaque above their little bassinet. Wow. There are many children that don't have names. Now, now the Lord knows with these children, many of them were aborted, that if their parents 
are never going to choose and believe in the Lord and come to heaven, then the Lord allows other people the pleasure of naming that child. And there are many people that have never had children of their own, and they get to take these little babies, and they get to name them, and they get to watch them grow up in, in heaven. I saw, I saw many angels. I saw many people in this nursery. I saw many rocking chairs. And I remember sitting in a rocking chair, and I was holding one of my own very, very small babies, and I was rocking him. And there are a, a type of um, type of heavenly being that are are orbs of light, and all of these heavenly beings were in this nursery. So they were all these bright lights. And I remember the babies just turning and just watching and cooing, and looking at all these all these bright lights. And so each little one is. It is cherished and is valued, and there are many, many women that never had the chance to rock their own babies, and they are in heaven. And that is their great privilege of getting, getting to watch these little ones grow up. And, um, and, and the Lord also, um, on another occasion, took me to heaven. He said, I have some people here who want to meet you. He brought out this large group of about 60 babies and children. He said, um, he said, these are the babies that you tried to save. Oh, wow. And I realized at that moment uh, that I had failed in saving many that I had hoped were saved. And I remember being so, so overwhelmed. I fell to the ground, and these little children came and surrounded me. And they hugged me, and they said, thank you. Wow. It was, it was, it was quite, quite profound. And um, I just have... I have one more thing I want to share. My, um, my dear husband, now, um, he, he knew that I was grieving over all of my own children that I had lost. He said, I, I can't heal your pain. I can't bring your babies back for you, but I can do something. And one day I woke up had made me a box of crosses for every child that I lost. I wrote the baby's names on the front and the date that I was pregnant on the back. And I have left instructions with my family that when I die, I want all my baby's crosses buried with me. I want each of their names read aloud. I gave them all my husband's last name. I want each name read aloud in memory and in honor of those lives. And then I want them buried with me so that they will finally receive a proper burial that they deserve. That is so powerful. And, and folks, just so that there's no confusion here. Um, Sharice's husband that she's referring to now is not the same person that yes. the cult had her marry, which she was talking about earlier in this program. Um, she is currently married to a man of God, and we're all celebrating him right now. So, um, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Folks, um, I've been talking with Sharice. Uh, you know, Sharice, you have so, so many aspects of your story that are profound. I mean, from the depths of darkness that you've had to navigate into the uh, types of encounters you've had with the Lord. I mean, it's extraordinary on both ends of the spectrum. And um, as I've said this before, your 
ability to recall and to describe these things is incredible. Uh, the level of detail that you have in your memory recall. Uh, and, and so folks, I, I, you know, my prayer is that, you know, if you've been through some of the things that Sharice has been through and you haven't been able to find validation, but just receive it. And if you are listening to her for the first time, again, go back and listen to the rest of her story. There are things that she said in this program um, that are going to make much more sense when you hear the rest, um, such as uh, the, the testimony of her dad's change after finding Jesus. Um, because in her other programs, she details just how far gone he was. Um, also, you made a reference, and I'll just point this out, uh, when, when you were talking about how the CIA guy uh, would flash the light in your eyes to ensure that you are totally dissociated and say, tick-tock. Well, he somehow knew the programming that you received in the Freemason Lodge based on hickory dickory dock the nursery rhyme. And so uh, you folks will be able to make some of these connections. Um, go back, the whole story. And Sharice, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to share so openly and candidly. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate you because um, you have always believed me and that is what survivors need. They need someone to, to listen and to believe their story and to validate it. So I appreciate that. You bet. Well, folks, uh, that is all for this week. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Until next time, God bless and God speak. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially.